FINRA collects a lot of data, a necessary side effect of overseeing the United States' vibrant capital markets. But FINRA isn't just keeping that data to itself. It's sharing it with financial firms to strengthen compliance rates with financial regulation across the industry. In this episode, we are joined once again by FINRA's Head of Market Regulation and Transparency Services, Tom Gira, to hear how FINRA is developing reports and report cards to foster fairer markets. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted. From Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm excited to once again be here today with Tom Gira, FINRA's Executive Vice President of Market Regulation and Transparency Services. Tom, welcome back. Thank you. Tom, last time we had you on, we talked a lot about how technology has changed the way your team surveils the market, but that's just some of the more recent changes in technology. There's been a lot of changes to how markets function over the past couple decades. So to kick off this episode, I wanted to start by asking what was the most interesting or perhaps the most challenging thing you've experienced over the course of your career? I think just the complexity of the market. It's just the whole notion of time, where in the past there was something called the Intermarket Trading System, ITS, which is a way that the markets were linked, and it started back in 1978. That was before my career started. But there were some rules in the ITS system that would give somebody two minutes to respond to an order. Two minutes, okay? We're talking about less than the time it takes for you to blink your eye that things are happening. Two minutes is an eternity in that context. And that rule was on the books until Reg NMS came into effect, which wasn't that long ago. And so you had a lot of competition of the fast electronic markets. And the floor markets had their benefits. A lot of liquidity came to them. And so it's market structures that had to get more reconciled. It's become much, much more electronic. And so now you have to worry about sequencing and latency. If you do have latency, the things you're looking at could be not in the sequence they actually occurred because you often have you're getting data from multiple sources with different clocks. So just the plumbing of the markets it has become much more complex. But then you layer on all the different order types. And I'm sure everybody has probably heard or read the Flash Boys book and how, you know, is the market rigged because all these orders that were catered to high-frequency traders and all that. For a lot of those orders, they do serve legitimate purposes given the market structure that we have now. But it does make it much, much more challenging and complex. Yes, that will definitely keep you engaged and always learning. And one other thing, the whole money aspect of it. The SEC recently announced a pilot for rebates. And the compensation obviously is always part of the marketplace. But you didn't really have rebates. That also adds a layer of complexity too. And a rebate is when a trader gets money back for routing. Yeah, in essence, right now, Reg NMS allows a cap to do a rebate up to three mils, which is 0.003 per share. You have what are called inverted markets, and you've got sort of the regular markets. So if somebody is taking liquidity, they would be paying the 0.003, and then they'll rebate back, not that full amount. They might rebate back to the person that provided liquidity, point zero zero two five and then the exchange makes that difference on the rebate an inverted market actually pays the person who's taking the liquidity again this is another layer of complexity in the market that's evolved 
And I think that's actually the subject of a ongoing sweep that your team's working it, on? It is. We want to make sure that the rebates that the brokers could be receiving is not compromising their duty to their customers to make routing decisions that are right for their customers. They should be routing to a market that has price improvement rates that make sense, speed, resiliency. There's just a lot of variables that go into best execution. But the fact that the broker might be receiving a rebate because of how it's routing its order flow should not be driving that decision. And that's what we're looking at. Okay, so you're trying to make sure that the investor's best interest remains first and foremost. We're looking to make sure that when they do their analysis on what's best for their customer, the rebate to the firm isn't part of that equation. And any listeners who aren't familiar, a sweep is a targeted examination to see if we need to shift our regulatory response. Yeah, the idea is that it's a more targeted review than a general examination. I will say that sweeps aren't very common. In market regulation, we're probably doing maybe one a year because we want all firms to be aware of issues that we are concerned about. There's a process we go through to make sure that a sweep is an appropriate thing to be doing. We'll publish the letters that go out to the firms that are involved in a sweep so that the firms who don't get those letters can see the issues that we're concerned about. And we will post in our show notes the letter for this sweep, which went out in November. But what's the current status of this examination? It's still in process. There's been a lot of second rounds of volume requests. So we don't have any conclusions yet, but we're still gathering and analyzing data. It sounds like there is a lot of data to consider for this one. So we'll have to get an update on that once you wrap that up. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about today is on our last episode with you, we looked at machine learning and how you've been using it to develop new surveillance patterns. But my understanding is that you don't just use this data to examine firms and refer enforcement matters. You're also sharing some of the data you get from your surveillance with firms to facilitate compliance. So I wanted to look at the report cards that we use to share this data and just talk a little bit about what the genesis of those were and how they work. Yeah. Well, we're not trying to scare people with report cards, flashbacks to school and all that. But as you said, I think what we're trying to do is leverage the data that we have that we use. And you know, if you look at FINRA from a high level, the firms fund FINRA. And so they allowed us to develop the systems we've developed that helps the market. But we also think uh, there's an opportunity to leverage that information that we're generating to actually in turn help the firms. And that's what report cards are all about. We started these back in the mid 90s and it was really initially focusing on things where there wasn't much of a gray area in terms of is there a violation or is there not a violation? So trade reporting is probably the best example of that. Now trade reporting is within 10 seconds. It used to be 90 seconds. But you knew whether a trade came in within 90 seconds or not. That was an easy analysis. And so we wanted to let firms know where they stacked relative to their peer group and relative to the industry at large. And so we give them their statistics, we give them their peer group statistics and in the industry. We even will tell them where they are within their peer group. Like, are you number one in your peer group? Or are you number 30 in your peer group? And overlaid on top of that is, a lot of the surveillance that we're running, we look over a period of time where we're looking for outliers. We issue these report cards monthly. Some of our sweeps are actually run quarterly. 
And so that firm can see, wow, this month I'm way below the average, what happened? And they can take corrective steps on their own to get their compliance rate up. Right now we're up to 41 or 42 report cards. We test them before they go out. A lot of firms want to know why it takes so long to come out. It's generated by the surveillance, but we also want to make sure that the information is accurate. Recently, over the last year or two, we started to get into manipulation-based report cards. So if there's conduct that is raising red flags to us, we want to let the firms know of that so that they can know that they're on our radar screen. And again, look and see, is there something they need to do from a supervisory standpoint? Or could they have a customer, unbeknownst to them, who might be writing toxic order flow for the firm that they may not have been aware of. So again, it's really to empower them to react to it. One of the things that we are very conscious of and is reverse engineering. So if we put out these sort of manipulation-based report cards, can somebody look at what they're getting and say, oh, okay, I know where they drew the line and then sort of trade right up to that line. So we actually worked with firms before we put out the first manipulation-based report card to give them enough information to point them in the right direction as to what the period of time is that we're looking at, the issue that we're looking at, without revealing any secret sauce that would allow them to reverse engineer. We want to help firms comply, but we don't want to help any bad actors figure out how to skirt the rules. Exactly. That makes sense. And I think some of these manipulation-based report cards also help firms when they couldn't possibly know all of the information on their client accounts. That's an excellent point. I I think when we last spoke, we talked about what we call relationship alerts. And what a relationship alert is, is when you have multiple firms apparently acting in concert to achieve a manipulative goal. And when that happens, arguably firm A, because it doesn't see the full picture, They might just see a trade that goes off. It looks benign to them. Firm B might see part of that as well. Firm C might see part of that as well. So that was one of the main drivers of why we did the report card actually in the first place is to put those firms on notice that even though they don't see the full picture, there's activity going through the firm that is part of a red flag. We do try to let them know, even though we don't tell them who the other firm is, We do generate a random number that persists so that if it is firm B, they get a number. If you see that number repeatedly, that's a pretty good red flag that somebody's doing it in a more concerted effort. If they see 10 different numbers, it's probably more random. So that's how we sort of tried to balance not revealing the other firm or firms, but giving them some indication of is there some commonality over time. And these manipulation-based report cards seem to be pretty effective. What have you seen there? Yeah, we launched these back in April of 2016. As I said earlier, our goal is to help firms be more compliant, have better surveillance, and do better in terms of market integrity and helping with investors. And it fluctuates month to month, but we have seen that the number of exceptions that are underlying our layering alerts has gone down. In one month, it went down over 80% relative to where it was in April of 2016. As I said, that fluctuates month to month, but it's consistently been down in the sort of a 60 to 80 range. Wow. Yeah. That gives your team a lot more time to focus on other matters. Well, it's more really for the firms. It's for them to say, 
do I need to take steps here? And kudos to the firms. When I went back to the relationship aspect of this, it could have been that the firm may have done some due diligence and then the customer changed or maybe didn't do enough due diligence on the front end. But I think they just were cutting customers off when they saw they were part of that activity. One of the things we find in a lot of the surveillance we do, it's a bit like the carnival game whack-a-mole, where one firm will take a step and then they'll pop up at another firm. And in surveillance, you can see you know, a firm that had no alerts all of a sudden has a bunch of alerts. And we find that there's variances among the strategies where best analogy I can think of is like sometimes there's signs and arsonists that you can see who they are. They sort of have like a signature. You actually see that in some of the surveillance where we can sometimes tell, okay, this customer got cut off at this firm and now they're at this firm. And will CAT impact your ability to track kind of these arsonist signs, as you call them? Again, it depends on the data being accurate coming into the cat. But assuming that data is accurate, the granularity of knowing the identity of each account will go a long, long way to enhancing the integrity of the patterns. So I know that you also have a new report that you just started including for firms on corporate bond markups. What's that report looking at and how is it going to impact the market? So what we do is we pair trades that come into the audit trail that where we can sell that they were the offsetting buy and sell and calculate a markup. And that serves as the basis for our surveillance alerts and the reviews that we open against firms if we see that they've got a potential market problem. A lot of the pairs that we're calculating are not problematic because they appear to be a fair price. They also appear to be in line with what others in the market are doing. So this report card is going to, on a firm-by-firm basis for corporates and agencies, it'll give you the mean and median figures for a variety of instruments where there'll be some differentiation based on the duration and the specific type of bond, but they'll get a comparison of their mean and median to the industry. I think this dovetails well with there's a rule that went into effect on markup disclosure. And I think this will help firms because for retail investors, they need to be putting the markups now in, in corporate bonds on, on the con firms. This might help them have a window into where they stack up relative to the marketplace. So we're really pleased and excited to see how they're received. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit to something that I think has a similar goal to the report and report card program, and that's the rapid remediation program. What is this and what are you looking to accomplish with that? One of the things that we have found is that the compliance rates are extremely high now for trade reporting, OATS reporting, uh, things that, that can be automated. But nevertheless, there can still be firms that might have some outlier compliance issues. And this is where the rapid remediation program comes in. One of the things, I'll just use this by way of example, is RegNMS. You know, you need to have a routing table of all the exchanges to know who to send what's called a sweep order to. You might have somebody who went in and they did some maintenance work over a weekend and they inadvertently deleted an exchange from that routing list. And then we can see it in the surveillance because they're trading through a particular market. When it looks like there's something that doesn't look like it's a nefarious sort of issue, rather than sort of open a review, what we did is we had analysts just kind of sort of call the firm and say, we're here, we're seeing this. 
And basically the message is we want to help you fix it. It's tweaking of a code and then we'll validate to make sure that it was fixed correctly. You know, it doesn't happen in a day, but it happens in a matter of days. And what that is replacing is another path where we might send a letter, we get documents back, we look at it. That can sometimes take a couple months to get through. Potentially could go to our enforcement department. They might think about whether to bring a case. They might bring a case. So it could be like a, a one to two year period in theory, or it can be this sort of dialogue up front. And we started out originally in the OATS area, and the OATS compliance rates have gone very, very high for a variety of reasons. Part of it was the rapid remediation program, but we now do it for trade reporting. We do it for some aspects of Reg MS, some aspects of short sale compliance. So the concept is to sort of front load things and have a discussion and we can tell it's a fairly insignificant issue that's readily fixable, we fix it and move on. Now, if a firm has a pattern of having that same issue over time or they don't fix it or whatever it might be, it might be a different story. But our hope is that we can sort of be more efficient in our use of resources and get to compliance a lot quicker. Yeah, there's no reason to waste two years on something that was a coding error that was accidental. And it might seem insignificant when you think of like a trade through. That is a disruptive thing to the market. So even though it might have benign reasons why it might have happened, it still can have downstream hiccups and bumps and inefficiencies to the market. Which is why the priority is to fix it as soon as possible versus just investigating over a long period of time. Exactly. So what does your staff think of this program? You know, they like it. We did it because the staff actually thought of the idea. We had a ton of cases at one point with oaths, and we're like, is there a way we can achieve compliance with our rules? Can we be more efficient? And there was a group of people that came back with this idea, and I was like, that sounds great. Let's give it a shot. And it took off from there. You know, when you do have the alternate path where you might be going to enforcement or even a minor violation, like a letter of caution, that could take some time. You sort of get a little bit of a disconnect where people might work on something and then it gets passed off. Here, they're doing it. It's much quicker, and they can tangibly see the improvement. So I think the staff really likes it. Well, that's always good. Well, Tom, that's all the time we have for this episode. There's still more I want to talk to you about, so another time we'll have to come back. But thanks for the great conversation. Once again, I'm Caitlin Kiernan from Washington. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Until next time. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation of such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form or reference them in any publication without the express written consent of FINRA.